Hey everybody, what is going on? Welcome to The Lab. It's 538's NBA podcast for April 26th, 2018. My name's Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I will be your host today. And I'm joined in studio by my fellow 538 sports writer, Kyle Wagner. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Neil. Our other usual co-podcaster, Chris Herring, is still away, but we're going to keep talking about the playoffs. We're going to go deep on the Jazz and Thunder as their series goes down to the wire. And we'll also preview the second round series between the Warriors and Pelicans. But first, let's break out some quick takes on the series that we're not going to go in depth on today, starting with the Cavs and the Pacers. Uh, Cleveland leads that one three to two now after winning at home in game five. How should Indiana be looking at this? Uh, on the one hand, they seem to have no answer for LeBron heading into an elimination game, which is bad. But it also took LeBron scoring 44 points and also having 10 rebounds and 8 assists. And Cleveland still only won by 3 points on a buzzer beater that LeBron hit that uh, you mentioned in our Slack channel. Reminded of that uh, 2009 shot that he hit against the Magic in, in the conference finals. This long buzzer beating 3 uh, should... What if you're Indiana? Are you positive about this, or are you negative about this going in? Yeah, that 09 shot with one of the great reactions of all time. Yes. game two. Stan Van Gundy's just like if you look it up, he's just he just shrugs. He's like, oh, what can you do? We'll, we'll go get him next time. And they, and did. they, they did. They won the series. But uh, but yeah, that's basically it. Where like, what can you do? It's if LeBron's going to do that. It's tough to win, but it's also tough to lose by only three points. And we should say that like uh, they were only in position to uh, you know tie the game or maybe tie the game because LeBron on one of those you know kind of doddering old man drives um, uh, turned the ball over where the refs uh, didn't see that like the ball had actually touched the baseline. Anyway. Well, I thought that was interesting. It, it seemed like LeBron had taken to heart some of the stuff. Uh, there, there was that stat floating around that in the second halves of these games, he had been floating further away from the basket and kind of settling for jump shots. And that the 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 drives that he tried to make late in that game were almost like an answer to that, and they didn't always work. Uh, and that was kind of a case in point. And then he ends up hitting a ridiculous three uh, as time expired. And this is my thing with the Cavs, where we just need to call them what they are. It's so a lot of times like you know they're the Cavs, they're whatever. No, no, what they are right now is they're a four seed that's struggling to find you know consistent offense and needed like two massive games from its best player to pull to a three two lead. And, like, that's not what we expect from this Cavs team. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's move on to the Raptors and the Wizards. Toronto took a 3-2 to two lead. Uh, they battled back and forth with Washington throughout Game 5, but then they went on a run late where it seemed like DeLon Wright was was making a lot of shots, and uh, you know, they pulled away late. What was the key for Toronto down the stretch, and can they sustain it for Game 6? DeLon Wright was great. And, like, DeLon Wright and, like, that bench unit and, like, all the other Raptors uh, are part of so we we kind of killed uh Demar last last episode a little bit where it's like what was his usage percent like forty nine percent forty nine or like fifty so like it was it was crazy and like he was also involved in a lot of other stuff um but that was also on the rest of the team if the rest of the team isn't going to do anything with the ball isn't going to make themselves available or take the shots if they are available well Demar has to take the shot and so this game Demar was working off the ball better Lowry was just solid on both ends but yeah they were uh, they were also just getting more from the bench stuff and they also just uh, did weird stuff to uh, to Wall too they had like Valanciunas played in the fourth quarter yes <laughs> like, which was incredibly rare uh, and, and uh, well noted by everyone and it, it worked out great yeah and they had him they had him doing stuff like not Valanciunas stuff they were just like hey go 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 up high on that pick and roll go go chase John Wall out there and he did it and it worked uh, yeah and Washington was held 
held to some really, really bad shots down the stretch, too, and that was what really kind of contributed as much as anything to that drought that they went on, uh, and, and Toronto was able to put the game away. Uh, let's talk about the Celtics and the Bucks. Uh, Boston turned the tide back in their favor after dropping two straight with a win on Tuesday. Now they have a 3-2 lead. What has stood out to you about uh, that game five, and, and what do you think going forward in that series? Well, Marcus Smart is back, uh, ruining basketball games the the way he you know only knows how to do. That's that's just a big deal for this team because in games three and four that defense was a mess, and he's back and like all of a sudden they're just playing with a little more energy. They're just a little better. He's doing absurd things like stealing or blocking the the alley oop for for Giannis at the rim, which is a thing that like isn't actually done by anyone in the NBA. Like for for a while there, Anthony Davis was stealing alley oops, which is even more absurd. But like. Alleyoops are pretty like unblockable. Yeah, and so he goes up there and he does that to Giannis of all and Marcus people. Smart yeah. of all people also yes. uh, to to do it. And then it seemed like Terry Rozier also kind of got untracked again, and all of the things that kind of worked for Boston early in that series sort of reemerged uh, in in Game Five. Mm-hmm. And the the other the other smaller thing, but not that actually that small, is Ajayale in the starting lineup, uh, which. Like all all the time when there's this, uh, we'll we'll get to this in in the uh, in the Golden State series when there's this older, you know, kind of like slower, more plodding uh, big man who's you know, there's like just someone waiting in the wings. It feels like a baseball like late season call up where like the coach is just waiting to put like the younger dude into the starting lineup, and like that just happened here. <laughs> okay, let's talk about a series, a couple of series actually that are now over. First up, the Sixers and the Heat. Uh, so much for us thinking that that series might be close like we had talked about going in. Uh, what's the ceiling for this Philly team now that they've kind of broken through and, and won a series, especially since they'll be playing either Boston or Milwaukee in, in the next round? Uh, wh- how far do you think that this young team can go now? I mean, like, what's their ceiling? Their ceiling is they can win the NBA Finals? Like, Can I, they? I mean, that's the question. That's a legitimate question. So uh, is it going to the Finals? Is it? We bring up the 1995 Magic as kind of a comparison for this team uh, with Ben Simmons being Penny Hardaway and Joel Embiid being Shaq. That team went to the Finals. And they got swept there. But is that sort of what we're looking at with, with the Sixers right now? I feel like it can be. So every team is flawed right now in a way that like feels disappointing, but actually makes the season like much more interesting at this point. The Warriors, obviously without Curry, um, have looked you know just bad on stretches on offense when they just get overloaded with Durant and um, Durant and Thompson, and like the East has also been a mess. And so yeah, like there is no team that is just saying, oh yeah, this is definitely a walk through walk through everyone team. Uh, that said, I think that they found a matchup that kind of played to their strengths a lot of in a lot of ways there there wasn't someone who was just going to you know carry that uh, Miami offense against the heat you mean yeah yeah I, I mean there was a lot of Dwayne Wade leading the team in scoring for for the heat a like how old is Dwayne Wade now 38 36 I yeah. think yeah but but yeah if, if things break right like exactly right there's like what one in a hundred one whatever chance more more likely their their plausible ceiling is like conference finals and you know possibly NBA finals like a smaller chance but but yeah, it was it was like we were saying last episode where the the doubt on this team was whether they were like, you know, properly uh properly tested and calibrated to succeed in the playoffs at all. Mm-hmm. If they were, um which they've showed showed like where they were just like getting all these second chances, they were get, just getting like all the rebounds, all the everything and it was just they're just younger, they're bigger, they're more athletic than almost all of these teams that they're playing against. And so that's just talent winning out, that's just like 
better players. So yeah, like their experience, inexperience didn't sink them. And if it's not going to, then they have a lot going for them. Yeah, you had mentioned that in the previous episode that uh, in a lot of cases in that Heat series, it was Philly that looked like the veteran team and the kind of more composed team, uh, which was interesting given the questions going in. Uh, okay, finally, Houston seems to really love the third quarter. They they outscored Minnesota 50-20 to in the third quarter game four, and they used another big third quarter run to bury the Wolves in game five. They wrapped up the series. Um, what stood out to you about the Rockets? And would if you were Houston, who would you rather see in the next round waiting? Would you rather see Utah or would you rather see Oklahoma City? Well, we'll get to the Rockets in a second, but I am so glad that we are done watching Todd Gibson on an island, just no help coming and just everyone being like, this is fine. This is how we want to play. And so, yeah, for the Rockets, uh, the Rockets like stood out where they have that feeling where they've had it all season, but like there have been times in the playoffs in the past and like obviously this is a much different team, but where the Rockets, uh, would feel like a dangerous offense during the regular season, but not quite in the same like, this is a terrible word, like playoffy way where when a play breaks down and like the offense isn't working, you have to reset a few times. And for some teams like the Timberwolves, uh, it feels like, oh, you're just going to get like a terrible catastrophic shot for the Rockets. You're just like, oh, no, this is going to be a three from like whatever. There was that Ryan Anderson shot. There was the first three of the series, whatever. And this is a very unquanty way to put it. Um, it's a feeling that you get with uh players and teams that uh, can exist in like those kind of environments like the the Warriors when they're at their best like the old Celtics teams where like there was just a they would start going on runs where oh yeah like the the offense cannot even be working and they're still going to get a pretty good shot yeah it's a, it's almost like what happens when you take away the the primary action of the play uh, and some teams are just completely lost if, if that doesn't happen according to plan and then you have these other teams like the Rockets have been all season really where the system kind of transcends uh, the anything that the defense might do and there's so many like counter adjustments built in and so many different ways that they can kind of beat you uh, and that was part of you know you don't score 50 points in a quarter without ha- without having you know many 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 different ways to kind of crush a defense and the T-Wolves were just like caught up underneath that and they had no chance, I think. But to answer your question, uh, of course you want to see the Thunder. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Ro- the Rockets, uh, like that's not even a question. Okay. Uh, like like Oklahoma City like it does not have the defensive discipline to like stick around with any of those shooters. Okay, well, uh, that provides a really good segue for us to actually dive deep into the Thunder and the Jazz uh, with their backs against the wall in Game 5. Oklahoma City looked like they were in big trouble. They trailed Utah by as many as 25 points in the third quarter, but Russell Westbrook would not let them go down quietly. He scored 33 points in the second half, shot 12 for 23 from the field, and the Thunder roared back to win 107-99, to avoiding elimination. Uh, according to our friends at ESPN Stats and Info, that was only the fifth time in the last 20 years that a team trailed by 25 or more points in a playoff game and then came back and went on to win uh, and from a Westbrook perspective he became the third player in NBA history to score 45 points have 15 rebounds and have five assists in a playoff game he joined LeBron James and Wilt Chamberlain in that regard so Kyle was the difference in this game just a matter of Oklahoma City's superstars breaking out again on top of Westbrook's big game Paul George also scored 34 points hit kind of a late dagger of a three to, to seal up the game uh, and I have another great stat from our friends at Stats and Info before you answer uh, 
Uh, Westbrook and George either scored or assisted on all 61 Thunder points from the moment that Oklahoma City trailed by 25 with 8 minutes and 30 seconds left in the third quarter. That's kind of crazy, right? But it also speaks to the potential of these superstars and kind of the blueprint that maybe Oklahoma City needs in order to actually win. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, that, that's, uh, that's a big part of it, uh, to, to answer the question up top. But, uh, the other, uh, number for that is, uh, minus two, which is what the Thunder were when Russell Westbrook was off the court. Right. Which, if you remember, uh, last season's Thunder and last season's series against the Rockets, that was not the case. Like, Russ would leave the floor for five minutes and the Thunder would lose by 12 or 15 in those five minutes, which would be absurd. It's just an insurmountable thing to, to overcome if you're just spotting that, uh, that many points in, like, that short amount of time. The Paul George lineups have not been great. They have not looked great at times, but they have, you know, just held down the fort enough to where, like, when George and Westbrook are playing together, uh, or just Westbrook out there in, you know, a different lineup, uh, it's not just, like, a catastrophe. And they were on the court together for what seemed like just huge stretches of time, uh, and, and notably not with Carmelo Anthony, uh, for, for a lot of the time down the stretch of that game. Uh, and, and it seemed like they were just kind of going to the bread and butter of the superstars, which is sort of what this team was designed to do. I mean, that's why you go out and you get Paul George and in theory, why you get Carmelo, although it hasn't always worked out. And then they just went on a 34 to 7 run to close the third quarter. Uh, another thing that I think maybe might be getting a little bit overshadowed, though, um, in, in light of all those scoring numbers for uh, Westbrook and George, is that the Thunder defense stepped up in a big way uh, in this game. According to NBA Advanced Stats, Oklahoma City held Utah to 99.6 points per 100 possessions in the game, including 91.8 in the fourth quarter. And for a little context, the Jazz had been averaging 100 9.2 points per 100 possessions during their wins in games two through four. So it seems like it, on top of having the great superstar offensive performance that Oklahoma City sorted out things on defense. Is that is that fair to say or is that something that they can kind of keep up going forward? I mean, it's that's the, the question if they're going to keep it up. Because um, the Jazz shot one for 16 from three from the moment of that 25-point lead onward, which doesn't seem sustainable as a defensive plan, you know, kind of hoping the guys miss. Right. But at the same time, I like the old the old Shaq saying is one lucky shot deserves another. And there were a few, let's say, uh, like Ricky Rubio. There was a Ricky Rubio three that was just like a bailout three. There were some Jay Crowder shots that like, you know, Jay Crowder walking into his, you know, own, like a little. Yeah, Jay Crowder was, was yeah. just had like all the room in the world, I feel like, early in that game to kind of get shots off. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, like they're not going to shoot as poorly as they did down the stretch. Uh, probably they're not going to shoot as well as they did, like in as they did to build up that lead. But the the Thunder were just like obviously playing, you know, elimination game defense. Where uh, like Westbrook, like it is always shocking to see Westbrook actually use his like his his imposing like uh like physical tools to like actually play like hard defense. Where there was this one play on. Uh, the left wing where he just like broke out into the passing lane and just like overpowered, uh, I forget who it was and just like stole the ball, like went down in transition, did what he does in transition. And it's like, oh yeah, like Westbrook's huge. Like if Westbrook like was locked in like this all the time, like that's just one more like ridiculous perimeter defender. Obviously that isn't usually the case. Um, but, but yeah, they, they look much better when they're, they're doing that when they have Jeremy Grant out there instead of, uh, Carmelo and like Jeremy Grant played a lot in this game. Uh, their best lineup actually was the, the Abrinus, Adams, and Grant lineup. 
uh, with uh, usually that's the Brewer lineup, but the the Brewer lineup also played well. Yeah, with Jeremy Grant on the court, they outscored Utah by 31.2 points per 100 possessions and had an offensive rating of 132.7. And basically, I mean, to your point also about Westbrook on defense, he vowed that Ricky Rubio was not going to have another game like he had in game four. And Rubio was basically a total non-factor in this game. I mean, he was held to 10 points. He shot four for 14. He only had seven assists. And then down low, uh, Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors were held in check. Uh, They only scored 21 points and grabbed 15 boards combined. They had combined for 30.4 points per game and 20.6 rebounds in games two through four. So it was, and it should also be noted that Donovan Mitchell uh, slightly less effective in the fourth quarter than he had been in those wins earlier. Uh, and it kind of all added up for the Thunder. So my question for you is, headed back for uh, Game 6 in Salt Lake City, what are you looking for in this game? What is the counter-adjustment that you make if you're Utah? Or do you make a counter-adjustment? Do you just sort of say, look, we're still getting these corner threes. They're still kind of inexplicably leaving people like Joe Ingles alone uh, for various stretches of, of offensive possessions. Maybe you just hope that the shots go in, and, and maybe that would would be the difference. I think that's it. I mean, if you go just go by traditionally how these series tend to go, where there's a three-one lead, the visiting team like drops game uh, games uh, five, and uh, with like you know a huge effort from like one of the team stars or two of the team stars, uh, typically that team then loses by like 30, 40 points <laughs> in game six. Uh, so that's fully what I'm expecting. Um, it would be fun if this won seven. It would. Um, if uh, the Thunder can, you know, get it together and play well, I'm actually really enjoying seeing the Grant lineups. Like, he's one of those dudes who can, like, uh, he started as, like, a three, basically, and he's, like, he can slide all the way down to five, and they're really fun when they do that. Um, and it's it's just good to see, like, Adams, like, not just out there alone in the front court again, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, the one thing for this is, like, before that run, uh, Westbrook was actually looking kind of gassed. Uh, there was that one move on the on the baseline when they're on the left side of the court on the TV, at least. Uh, where he just like went uh, back, made a move to the rim on the on the right baseline, and in the past that's one where Russ just goes up and just like finishes either strong, either with a dunk or just like a strong move, and he just like couldn't even get it over the rim or whatever, and it was just one of those moments where like oh this is a guy who can get tired and like you usually don't he's see human him yes. And yeah, he went five for sixteen in the first half, which I think was uh, kind of making. First of all, that contributed to the 25-point lead for Utah, but also uh, it had everyone in that whole building feeling defeated, I think, and, and kind of thinking like, well, that's it. You know, it's not going to happen. Right. And so so maybe he's just he was conserving energy to close strong because, you know, elimination game, you want to do that. But uh, watching him, like he, he burned a lot of rubber off the treads in uh, last season, last season's playoffs, and then like through large stretches of this season – and uh if if he and George just have like the energy to to keep that up, even though like Russ isn't doing it all alone, it's for a lot of times it's him and George. Yeah, and and we should say in the series, uh they have a combined sixty five point nine percent usage rate. Uh so one of the premises of this team was supposed to be that Westbrook would finally have help and that he wouldn't have to put up the 37% usage and and kind of take it on all by himself. And George has provided that in this series for sure. Uh, but we kind of have to go back to Anthony and have to talk about how, you know, he was absent from the court for long stretches as they were sort of coming back from, from the deficit in that game. And he's been sort of a non-factor, I think, in general in this series, uh, if not all season long. So, 
you know, this Thunder team remains kind of a flawed team, even if they are able to sort of advance. Uh, so we'll keep an eye out on that. Game six will be on Friday. Game seven, if it does happen, will be on Sunday. For what it's worth, the 538 model has the Jazz at a 79% probability of winning and advancing. Uh, so from there, let's pivot to a series that we will be looking forward to. It's the only second round series that that's currently set that we can even kind of talk about and preview. And that would be the Golden State Warriors against the New Orleans Pelicans. That one tips off game one is Saturday night. Uh, so we did a little wrap up about the Pelicans unexpected sweep over the Blazers in round one. We didn't get a chance to properly wrap up the Warriors opening round win over the Spurs. So Kyle, what did we learn anything about the Curryless Warriors in that series or was it just kind of a hopeless situation for the Spurs compounded by personal tragedy for uh, Greg Popovich and just an overmatched team that didn't have Kawhi Leonard? What, how much can you learn uh, beating a team like that? You can't really learn much about the overall quality, I think, but you can learn pieces. And so one of the pieces we learned in that the Spurs used their great advantage, uh, which is how they you know, kept these, uh, these final games close, uh, is that the offense is in trouble without Steph Curry. Not just like diminished, but like actually if in a playoff series against a good coaching staff and a good, uh, you know, kind of lineup, that's something that like teams can actually take advantage of because they only have two outside shooters right now that are threats in the lineup. They have uh, Kevin Durant and they have Clay Thompson and Andre Iguodala is not hitting any shots. Draymond Green is not hitting any shots. And this has happened. He's hit a few when he was wide open, but aside from that. Right. And so. That is a problem where this team used to have 40% shooters up and down the roster where they were just coming in and out of the lineup, and that is no longer the case. And, like, Iguodala and uh, Green have both had uh, seasons and postseasons where they have, haven't shot the ball well at the same t- – uh, but never at the same time. It was all either, like, Draymond was shooting okay and, like, Iguodala's, like, kind of a little off, or Iguodala's off and Draymond's, uh, you know, back on for the series. They haven't had it where both of them are, you know, kind of cold, and they have to kind of situate the offense around – Two players, because again, Curry's not there, and we don't know uh, what Curry's going to look like when he's back. But we've seen uh, what the Pelicans can do against an offense that is situated around two shooters, and they they cause a lot of problems for the for the Blazers. So if that's what the the Warriors are walking into uh, with this series, then like we just have proof already from the last round that that's kind of a problem. Yeah, Durant shot a, an uncharacteristic twenty five percent from three in that first round series, and the Warriors as a whole shot a very unwarriors like thirty three point six from downtown. 25% uh, in the last three games. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about Curry's availability because that is sort of the elephant in the room for this series so far. We had mentioned that late in the Spurs series, Warriors coach Steve Kerr said Curry would not be back, quote, anytime soon. Uh, he's scheduled to be reevaluated on Friday. Doesn't really sound like he's going to be ready for game one, if not even game two. Uh, and the Warriors did cruise, you know, for the most part past the Spurs without Curry. Um, but is this a situation where this team is good enough and should be favored to win even without Curry because they still do have Durant. They still have Clay. They have Draymond. They have all of these kind of name players uh, and the role players that have been sort of tailor-made to kind of fit around the Curry version, but they, you know, they'll, they'll still have some stars to play next to. Uh, is that Should they be hoping just to hold down the fort until Curry comes back later in the series, or is this a team that if Curry missed the whole series, should they still be outright favored? Um, I'm not sure if they would be favored. Um, I think it would be... They do close, have home court. Yeah, they have home court, and it would be a close series. Um, and the other thing is their defense has been very good. I mean, it's also against uh, what had become a very bad offensive team in San Antonio. But the defense held them to 41% from the floor, 28% from three. And, like, those are good numbers no matter who you're playing unless it's, like, the 
worst tanking version of like the Grizzlies or something. So the defense is good enough to where they should be in equilibrium, and I forgot the rest of your question. <laughs> uh, so I think that basically was the question is, should they be hoping, uh, you know, just kind of circling the date that Curry comes back and hoping that he can be their salvation late in the series, and that if they can just hold even until then, um, th- they'll be okay? Or is it a situation where it's like, look, if Curry misses the whole series, this is still the Warriors. This is still Kevin Durant and a bunch of other All Stars. Uh, they, they seems like with home court they should be favored. I mean, I guess so. I I just want to see how the how the how it looks. I want to see one game of it, and then like obviously we'll have to you know find out if Curry's coming back at all for the series. Uh, what's going on? Because you know the Warriors um, kind of can be squidgy on you know those return dates. Um, yeah, but but yeah, I mean, Kevin Looney's been playing very good defense at the center position. Uh, Iguodala, the, even though he hasn't been shooting well, like the lineups are good because you know he's been playing very well on defense. Um, and like, but the bench is the bigger issue. Where with Curry out, like the bench is diminished. Uh, with Andre in the starting lineup, the bench is diminished. Uh, David West and Sean Livingston have really been the only two bench contributors. As as the saying goes, it's not like not the it's not the replacement, it's the replacement's replacement. And so like Nick Young hasn't really been doing anything. Like JaVale McGee like has been like giving you good like Lamarcus Aldridge minutes. That looks different playing against uh, Anthony Davis, who does a lot of the same things that like JaVale was you know using to you know exploit the Lamarcus matchup and uh, does them much better. Yeah, and uh, I'm especially interested in that matchup between that Warriors defense and the Pelicans offense because the Pelicans offense was great in the first round. Uh, Obviously, a lot of that is due to Anthony Davis doing... Anthony Davis things, you know, there's not a lot you can do about that. But uh, as we kind of harped on, and Chris had mentioned even as somebody to watch going into the series, Drew Holiday played great. They also got really efficient performances from some of the supporting guys like Rajon Rondo and Nikola Mirotic. Uh, and it does seem like this is a Pelicans offense and, and group that is gelling at the right time. And this Warriors team is a different defensive look than the Blazers. And that could be a bad thing or a good thing because we talked about, you had mentioned this a lot, Kyle, that the Blazers defense almost seemed uniquely suited to struggle against the Pelicans. Uh, and, and the Warriors are kind of a different scheme that, that presents different challenges. Oh yeah, like uh, like that that runway that was there for the first few games, at least for for Rondo and Holiday, that's just not going to be there. Um, and so like that's it's just I'm interested to see how they sort that out. Like playoff Rondo, uh, if that continues uh, into the second round, I'm like I'm fascinated by that dude, and I'm interested to see what happens. Like a lot of this is just like let's see what happens in game one. Like mm-hmm. where if Miritich does like stay hot and like can continue, you know, playing at that level, if Rondo can continue. You know, picking apart defenses and contributing like to all the the offensive stuff. That's the other thing where um, having having like you know players like Rondo on the floor, play, players like Davis on the floor uh, on defense uh, against a much more stagnant Golden State offense uh, is uh, just super valuable. Where oh yeah, like you're not really able to you know call out plays and you just run all over. Where they're just like running the the Golden State offense where you're running all these off ball screens and like it's just hard to keep track of like any player. If it's just like Kevin Durant pounding the ball and just like looking for for Clay Thompson now and then, oh yeah, we can diagnose that real easy. Yeah, and and the New Orleans defense slowed down Damian Lillard in round one, and he played terribly. Uh, and McCollum kind of got it going at various points, but basically that backcourt matchup, which was supposed to be sort of the strength and and the the mismatch in favor of the Blazers, ended up being a terrible just you know, completely one-sided route in favor of New Orleans. And so now you have 
you know, Clay Thompson, eventually Curry, uh, and, and some different kinds of strengths for the offense of the, of the Warriors. And then, you know, going up against, uh, that matchup between Kevin Durant and, uh, Anthony Davis, whenever it does happen, you know, on his drives or whatever, that's going to be really interesting, I think, and, and, you know, kind of a different look than the way New Orleans was neutralizing just the backcourt stars of, of Portland. Uh, agree. And, uh, the other thing is if, uh, like if we're going to see Zaza at all in these yeah. playoffs, um, he's he kind of, we, we mentioned, uh, OJLA coming into the Boston series. Uh, Looney and McGee, uh, seem to have like kind of locked down that center rotation where Draymond will still slide in for, you know, the death lineup uh, or whatever version of the death lineup they can have without Curry out there. Yeah. And, and we, we haven't seen Zaza play in, in the playoffs yet. Uh, even Jordan Bell only averaged about four minutes per game in the first round. Uh, and so it has seemed to be Looney and West have, have soaked up a lot of those kind of big man rotation minutes. Um, We'll see what anyone in the front court of Golden State can do against Anthony Davis, though, because that's a completely different animal than anything that they face so far. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just a frustrating series or team to talk about with, with just not knowing what Curry's what's going on with Curry, because everything changes. Like it, the entire offense changes, like the entire strategy changes, uh, your strategy against them changes, and so and. So, like, even if Curry comes back and he's a decoy, he's still a fantastic shooter to where, like, he's going to, you know, uh, kind of warp the defense in his direction. Which we saw a little bit in 2016 when he came back from injury and wasn't 100% uh, when he first came back in the playoffs. Even him as a decoy is such a threat and, and such a difference maker on offense that uh, it, it changes the complexion of the team. Right, and especially with this team that is just relying on two outside shooters like some 90s, like... Uh, whatever team where instead, like if you have three and like you can move them around some screens, whatever, and like assuming, you know, he's healthy enough to, you know, cut off those screens. Uh, yeah, that looks, that looks much different, uh, in a hurry. Okay. So having said all that about how unpredictable this series is, not knowing Come Curry's on. <laughs> strength, let's talk about predictions, Kyle. Uh, what would your prediction be right now in this series? I would take, oh God, like I have no idea. I have no idea who's playing in the series. Can I know who's it's a, playing? It's a little flying blind. Uh, Warriors in, in six. Fine, wh- whatever. Neil, what is your prediction, first of all? And number two, um, like if, let's say Curry doesn't, uh, play in the first game, first two games, and this is coming back either t- tied or like the, say the Pelicans win the first two. Like, I mean, like this is a series that like I could see them winning pretty, not easily, but like pretty the Pelicans, reali- you mean? Yeah, pretty realistically. Yeah, I mean, so I would say on balance right now, I agree with you, uh, about Warriors in six. If Curry misses the first two games and they go down, I mean, that does shift it where the Pelicans should be favored at that point. And that does kind of tell you what the margin for error is for this team. Uh, early in a series, you might not think that games one and two really make that much of a difference. But when you're playing at home and you're not holding serve and you're missing one of your, you know, best players or your absolute best player, as we've talked about uh, a number of times, you know, Kevin Durant on paper, probably a better player than Steph Curry, it just in the grand scheme of pop him down in any system and, and you know, have him operate. But given the construction of the Warriors and the scheme that they run, Curry is easily their most indispensable player. And it's kind of amazing that they were able to survive and, and do so well, you know, a five-game win in the first round based on just Kevin Durant just dribbling down the court and rising up 
you know, and getting whatever shot he wanted. And that seemed to be sort of like the central, uh, uh, cornerstone of the offense. And then once they tried to kind of commit on that, have him pass it to Clay Thompson, uh, you know, coming off a screen or something like that. And those were like, that was the Warriors offense in the first round, basically. Yeah. I mean, and so that might be the, the Warriors offense for stretches of the second round. Yeah. And like, this is something that we can come back to in like a, in a future show or something, but like, we're burying it here at the end. But that's something that I've been feeling uh, through the first round, but definitely I feel like is going to come up in the, come up in the second round where all of a sudden we're not used to in either conference, uh, it feeling like these second round series have any Matter. consequences. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they kind of do here where, all of them are realistic matchups where, like, either team can win and, like, advance. Now, of course, flipping around your hypothetical, maybe Curry only misses game one, comes back for game two. They win both of those, and you could easily see a universe in which they sweep or win in five. So, I mean, that does speak to the uncertainty of it, and maybe we'll all kind of look silly down uh, after the second round is over for saying, like, oh, this year the second round matters uh, for the first time in many years. But I think you're right that, you know, we've, gone into this season uh, and all season long we've kind of hammered on this that this particular NBA season feels different than previous ones it feels less like there's a fait accompli about who will play in the finals who will win the championship and even who could make the conference finals Uh, and and I think that that's great because it had gotten so sort of stale I think uh, over the past couple years with with feeling like oh well you just pencil down the Cavs and Warriors to make the finals no matter what just book it uh, for for a number of years on end, it's nice to have that uncertainty. Now, for our job as picking these things, makes it a little less nice, but... And it's, you also wonder if, like, we have maybe overtrained the models for picking champions then, too, where uh, it, adjusting for, for, for the Warriors and, like, their, their march to, to, you know, certainty and, you know, uh, destiny, uh, now we're just, like, picking, uh, you know, 50%, 50%, 60% for, for, for the Rockets coming into the playoffs. It's like, oh, well... Uh, this looks a little more open than it did uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah, that, our definition of what's open and not, yeah, it also is kind of heavily uh, viewed through the lens of what's happened over the past couple of years. And that's also true with, with Cleveland. You know, we, we talked about it. You had said at the top of this show that in any other circumstance, we would look at the Cavs and say, this is a four seed struggling to win against a five seed when they have, you know, uh, winning games at home only by virtue of making ridiculous buzzer beating things threes and we've having their best that, player we've seen that series with Giannis. yeah exactly and and we are just giving the Cavs the benefit of the doubt now because of their tra- solely because of their track record solely because we've seen them pull it out before and we know that eventually that benefit of the doubt runs out and i'm wondering whether that's the year it's it's not going to be the year i don't think for the warriors so much because they are going to get curry back we've seen what they can do uh and and their little regular season malaise at the end seems to have been shrugged off uh for the most part but the cavs real questions and this is how dumb we are as fans like we are going to complain about this of like oh yeah all the best teams like they no one was good that year when but when their teams are good or just like oh yeah NBA's boring like yeah, you know we complain who's win. Like, we find a way to complain no matter what uh whether there's too much parity not enough parity uh, it's it's always something to complain about i think Okay, let's leave things there for now and close up the show. We're going to talk to you early next week uh, and bring you even more playoff analysis. As always, our podcast producers are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. You can keep sending us your questions and comments at podcast at 538.com. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we are there, whether it's the Listen tab of the ESPN app or on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. 
Be sure to review and rate the show wherever you find it. It helps others discover the program. For Chris and Kyle, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.